If you would turn in God's Word this morning to Esther chapter 4, we are going to complete um, a series that we began a few weeks ago. It's page 780 in your pew Bibles, 780, Esther chapter 4. Esther is a very uh, brief um, book. If you really don't know the story, I invite you to just spend some time today and and read through it. It's a a wonderful story of God's work and his providence. And um, we're going to begin reading with chapter 4. And in order to understand what's, what's going on in this chapter, it's helpful to know uh, what, what's going on in, um, in chapter 3. And so there are, there are two characters who have up to this point sort of been the main characters, Mordecai and Haman. Haman is the antagonist. And um, Mordecai refuses to bow down to this high Persian official. And uh, Haman takes... <clears throat> um, he doesn't like that fact, right? And so in chapter 3, verse 6, you read this. Um, Yet having learned, so, so Haman's got it in for Mordecai, but then we read this. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai, so taking revenge just on Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So that's sort of the background to what we're about to read. Um, The rest of that chapter 3 is Haman figuring out exactly how he's going to take revenge, how he's going to do away or annihilate all of God's people. And that's where we uh, we come to chapter 4. So let's uh, read God's word. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes He put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes." When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. 
But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, up until now we've been looking at this story sort of from the height of 30,000 feet. We've seen how it testifies really to the sovereignty of, of God. That, that even when we don't see perhaps God's hand active in our, in our daily lives, we can still be assured that he is indeed moving and guiding all things toward the salvation of his people. But if we're going to study truly the, the book of Esther, we can't stay up in the heavens forever. Because the story does take place here on the ground. And the line that we all, I think, remember from the book of Esther, the line that sort of makes this book, right, is, is what? For such a time as, as this. It's Mordecai's line, or at least part of it, to Esther. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as, as this. It's a great line. It really is. It's the kind of line we put on bulletin covers and you might see on greeting cards. You might hang it on a plaque in your kitchen, that kind of thing, for such a time as this. But if you're not careful, that line actually can sort of hijack uh, this, this story. And what I mean by that is that we need to put emphasis on Esther and on her decisions and all that she does. But if you put too much Esther or too much emphasis there, we can go down some wrong paths. Okay? Just a couple of them. The first one is this. We can't forget that the book of Esther is, first of all, about God. Even though he is not mentioned anywhere in the book, it's about God. It's a story about God's providence. It's about the way his hidden hand guides and influences the events of our lives so that in the end, like I said, his will is done and our salvation is achieved. That's the comfort that this book has to offer, the comfort of knowing that, that God is always faithful to his covenant and faithful to his covenant people in Jesus Christ, even if we do not see it. He is being faithful to us as a people. The second thing to keep in mind here is that the characters of the story of Esther, just like anywhere else in the Old Testament, they are not intended to be role models 
for us to model our lives on. Okay, and I know that this is a hard one for some of us to believe. But the characters of Scripture are not necessarily meant to be our role models. In other words, don't turn Esther into a model for Christian living. Okay? Unless that is that your goal for your daughter might be to join a king's harem one day. If that's not the case, you might want to choose a different role model. I mean, think about it. For so much of this story, there is so little depth to Esther. I mean, appearance is, is all that matters to her. She really has no backbone. She has no conscience. She has no values. She simply does, really, everything that she's told. Oh, there's a beauty pageant? Sure, I'll join. I'd like to be a part of that. Um, join a harem? I'd love to. Another week at the spa? Oh, do I have to? Deny my heritage? Well, like whatever. I mean, this is the stuff that the bachelor is made of. And this is where Esther is. Even here in our text in chapter 4, I mean, we find Mordecai. He's weeping and wailing over how his personal conflict with Haman has now jeopardized the entire Jewish people. People are in the streets with Mordecai in sackcloth and ashes, weeping and crying. And what does Esther do? She sends him a new set of clothes. It's kind of this she's saying, oh, Mordecai, don't worry, be happy. She doesn't try to determine the cause of Mordecai's grief. She doesn't put on her own sackcloth. She doesn't get down with Mordecai in the gutter. Rather, she sort of remains aloof and distant, very superficial. So be careful before you turn biblical characters into examples for Christian living. That's just a, a dangerous practice. Now with that said and with that danger noted, there is still, I think, a lot that we can learn from Esther and from her decisions. And so with those couple of cautions in mind, let's, let's plunge in nevertheless. And it may be helpful, I think, to look at this story in the context from which I think it's written. And that's the context of life and of death. Life and of death. If you're like me, we're constantly being told that things are a matter of life and death, right? Just in this past week, I could think of, of three events. I heard of of someone from, I heard someone on the radio talking about how all of us should learn CPR because it's a matter of life and of death. I heard the very same thing about wearing seatbelts. And I heard the very same thing about the response it takes for an ambulance to respond to a 911 call. These are all matters of life and in death. Life and death. So I don't think it's too big a stretch to say that the story of Esther really is a story of life and death. Isn't that Mordecai's message, really, to Esther here in chapter 4? I mean, after Mordecai hears of Haman's desire to annihilate the entire Jewish population, and after um, Mordecai reads, or reads the flyers on the street of how Haman is actually going to go about doing this, he goes and he tells Esther, Esther, this is a matter of life and of death. 
And of course, Esther fires back at Mordecai, and she says that, look, Mordecai, to enter the king's presence uninvited is also a matter of life and of death. And this is where Mordecai gets to the crux of the matter. And he says this, don't think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. You will perish. Now, now hear what Mordecai is saying there, friends. He's saying, look, Esther, you have a choice here. You can either remain silent, okay, or you can speak up. If you speak up, if you go into the presence of the king uninvited and you speak, yes, you could die. That's a possibility. But if you remain silent, you will surely die. Now, there's been some dispute here over what exactly Mordecai means. I mean, the straightforward meaning, I think, as we hear it, the most likely meaning seems to be that Mordecai is is pointing out simply that if Haman is allowed to proceed with his plan, right, then at some point Esther herself will be exposed as being a Jew and she too will be killed. There's no escape from that. However, some people feel that Mordecai here is actually threatening Esther. He's telling her that, look, if you don't act, Esther, if you don't go in and talk to the king, then I will expose you myself. I will let the world know who you truly are. Now, it's hard for me to buy that idea that Mordecai is actually threatening Esther here. It just doesn't seem to fit his character in the rest of the book. But I do think that he is saying more than simply her true heritage is one day going to be exposed. What I think Mordecai is saying is something more like this. Esther, if, if you don't go in and confront the king now, or, excuse me, Esther, if you do go in and confront the king, yes, you may die. That's entirely a possibility. But, If you do not go in and confront the king, then you are already dead. You're already dead. Now, what do I mean? She's already dead. Well, it's hard to read the book of Esther without seeing that that this is a book about Esther's identity. Who really is Esther? Who is she? For instance, Esther is the only character in this book with two names, right? She's given two names in the book. Esther, her Persian name, and Hadassah, her Hebrew name. And it's like the author is is saying to us, okay, let's decide who is she? Who is Esther? This is something that she has to decide. And up until now, Esther's been pretending to be a pagan, right? And as a result, she's been weak and passive. She lets her circumstances control her. She doesn't initiate any action. She follows the path of least resistance. She seems very much unaware of the larger story that's going on in the kingdom around her. 
She doesn't seem to be aware of Haman's plan whatsoever, even though all the Jews in the kingdom are aware of it. It reminds me of a, of a time in high school. This is going to date me tremendously, but I was in high school when the Iran hostage crisis was going on. Some of you may actually remember that. It was like in 1979, um, a new regime uh, came into power in Iran, and they took 52 Americans hostage. And that hostage crisis went on for 444 days, okay? Our country was trying to get those hostages released. Some of you may actually remember that time. Well, on the Sheboygan Press at that time, every day, that entire 444 days, in the front page, there was a little article or a headline or whatever stating how many days the Iran hostage crisis was going on. So for over a year, this was headlines, right? So I remember one day in, in history class, um, our teacher was actually talking about current events for once, and he mentioned the Iran hostage crisis. And the person sitting in the desk in front of me turned around, looked at me, and said, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? Never heard the Iran hostage crisis. That would be like, like somebody never hearing that there's a war going on in Ukraine today, Okay. And that's kind of, that's where you, you begin to understand this is sort of where Esther is. She's a little clueless to the whole thing. Like, oh, there's, there's something going on? Somebody's trying to annihilate our people? And so Mordecai is posing the question to her. Esther, who are you? Are you really a pagan queen? Or are you about ready to identify yourself with the people of God. Because to be Hadassah, to be a Jew, is to recognize that you are one of God's people and that you are a part of God's covenant and that there are two sides to that covenant. Yes, God says he will bless you, but there are also responsibilities that come to you in that covenant. And to be a Jew is to see that you are a part of a nation of priests. It's, it's, it's up to you to recognize that you are employed in the service of God. And therefore, to refuse to march into the king's quarters is to deny that identity. To refuse this request is to prove that Hadassah is already dead. That she no longer exists that you really are not a part of God's covenant people. And perhaps you never were. In other words, this moment is a matter of life or death for Esther, but perhaps not in the way that she is thinking. If she refuses to take up her responsibility, if she refuses to go into the king, yes, she may live, but she may miss out on the true life that God has meant for her from the very beginning. This is a defining moment for Esther. Will she be the person that God called her to be? Will she identify herself with God's people? Will she place herself at God's disposal? Or will she cling to her safe but directionless anonymity, her safe, purposeless, clueless 
anonymity. It's a matter of life and death. Friends, I think it's interesting that the Apostle Paul is a lot like Mordecai in this regard. He really sees the Christian life in these same terms as a matter of life and death. Paul sees our lives through the lens of this sacrament, through the lens of baptism. Baptism, too, is a matter of life and of death. There's an old self and there's a new self. There's an old identity and there's a new identity. And Paul asks us constantly throughout his letters, which one are you going to feed and which one are you going to starve? It's a choice that we have to make. Baptism is a defining moment. When we are baptized, we are identified as one of God's people, and we take the name Christian upon ourselves. It's a new name. We become little Christs, and we identify ourselves with His people, with His church, and with His mission. You are not anonymous any longer when you've been baptized. You are a part of this people gathered right here in the corner of Lily and Burleigh. You are associated with all of them. What they do, you do. What they fail to do, you fail to do. Their reputation is your reputation. You are not anonymous. You are one of these people. Think about the Toyota commercials that we see so often on TV. Toyota, for the last number of years, has used the same um, spokesperson for their products, right? I think her name is Jan in the commercials. Some people refer to her as Toyota Jan. Well, imagine if you saw Jan out on the street one day and she was driving a Ford. You would think that was a little strange, right? That, that doesn't fit your character, Jan. You can't do that. You're the Toyota lady. And friends, when you are baptized... You become the Jesus lady. You become the Jesus man. You've associated yourself with him, and he has associated himself with you. Everything that he stands for, you now stand for. And to do something, therefore, unchristlike is to be out of character. It doesn't fit. You see, that's baptism. When we are baptized, we die to the self that we used to be. The self that could drive any make or model whatsoever. And we rise with Christ. And we are now His. But baptism, friends, does not just involve one death. It's not a once and done thing, contrary to what we may believe. Baptism, rather, is a whole series of defining moments in our lives. It's day after day, moment after moment, identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ and with obedience to his commands. We either identify with his commands or we don't. It's a series of life and death decisions. We're either starving the old self or we're starving the new self. Every day, every moment, we have to make those decisions. Tomorrow morning, when some of you go to school, you will have to make, a, make that decision. When you get on the school bus tomorrow morning, you will see a bunch of your friends, perhaps in the back of the bus, waving to you and saying, we've got a seat for you right here. And as you make your way to the back of the bus, you will also perhaps see Stefan, 
who's sitting all by himself, just as he always is, and everyone knows why, and you do too, and you have a choice to make. Will you do what you know Jesus wants you to do? Will you be a true friend, or will you walk past? It's a choice, friends, that you have to make. It's a defining moment that you have to make. And that's life. It's a series of those defining moments, one after the other after the other. Are you going to feed the new self, the Jesus in you, or are you going to starve the new self? Esther, in chapter 4, chooses the new self. She chooses to identify herself with God's people. And she boldly steps into the king's presence. And so begins the reversal of her life. As you read the text, you quickly see that Esther is no longer passive, but she becomes very active. She comes to life, you might say. She is now the one who is directing the action. She is the one who is commanding people. She is planning the strategy to save her people. She's confronting the evil Haman and the king. Esther is now the one who's telling Mordecai what to do. And her life takes on a new energy, and it takes on a greater purpose and a boldness to face any new threats. And it's as if Her occupation now becomes her vocation. Her occupation as queen now becomes her vocation. And it's interesting that from this point on, Esther is always referred to as Queen Esther, as if she's finally come into her own. This is her calling. This is her mission from God. And it's through this great reversal in Esther's life that God brings about a great reversal in the lives of all of his people. Their destiny also is reversed from death to life. And because Israel is saved here and God's blessing still flows through them to the rest of the world, what else happens? Our destiny is reversed, mine and yours, from death to life in Jesus Christ. Friends, I don't think the author's message in this book is to be like Esther. But I do think the author wants us to consider all of the good that came from her decision to finally identify herself with the people of God and with God's calling on her life. Her decision to really live to live into the person that God created and called her to be. And I think the author also wants us to consider all the good that could result if you and I do the same thing. If you and I begin to live into our baptisms, if we remember our true names, the name that's written on our foreheads and this day, The truth of God's sovereignty, friends, does not cancel out the weight of human responsibility. In terms of baptism, killing off the old self and bringing the new self to life, it's fully the work of God through the Holy Spirit. We all know that. But at the same time, we must do the work as well. 
It's a daily choice, a daily decision. We must live into the person that Jesus made us to be, or else what? We are already dead. Friends, throughout this series, we've heard that God is sovereign, and we've praised Him for His providence. He is in control. He's using our decisions, our circumstances, to make sure that His will will be accomplished in the end. But what does that mean for human responsibility? Does that mean we just sort of float along with the rest of the crowd and we trust God will do His thing? You know, there are lots of forces in this story in Esther that guide people's lives and guide their decisions. Let's, let's call them the three C's, okay? First of all, there's culture. There's culture, right? We do whatever or whatever everyone else is doing. We follow the path of least resistance. And this is one of the reference points Esther was using much of her life. She just followed the road most traveled. The road with least resistance. And we often do the same thing, friends. We go along with our culture. Whatever happens to be going on around us, we adapt the business practices of our peers. We soak in the same films. We fill our calendars with the same events. And often our decisions are guided by what will best keep us on the wide road. Another one of those C's that seems to guide people in this story is chance, right? This is what guided Haman's path and Haman's decisions. He was looking for a date, or when he was looking for a date to carry out his plot to annihilate all of God's people, what did he do? He literally tossed the dice. And I'm amazed at how often... We as Christians make decisions in the very same fashion. It's ironic. We will, we will pour through consumer reports and we will scour the web to find just the right dishwasher or the right smartphone to buy. But then we'll go on a date with ever who's the first person to approach us in a bar hoping that this will be the love of our life. Chance. And then there are circumstances this is what we see in our text today, one of those circumstances. Mordecai says, you've got to go and see the king. And Esther says, you know, it's been 30 days since he's called for me. His, his interest in me is wearing a little thin, Mordecai. Mordecai. And that's what, he, that's what she actually says. What she doesn't vocalize is the whole point that, that Mordecai, remember my predecessor? She once took initiative with the king. That didn't turn out so well. And now you want me to take initiative with the king at the risk of my life. It's obvious, Mordecai, that the king does not like assertive women. My circumstances tell me I should not do this. And friends, those are the three C's that guide so many of us. Even though we're God's people. But there is one more C that sort of rises above the rest in this story, isn't it? It's the covenant. God will not allow us to forget the story of the covenant. That he has chosen us for a reason. That's why we're here. And that is to bless the world. To bring his gospel to the world. To save the world. He wants to save the world through us. 
And so one of those questions that we must ask first and foremost is, does the covenant play a role in my life and in my decisions? Is the covenant a part of my identity? Before I make a choice, do I remember who I am and who God has called me to be? Let's say you're a nurse. There may be many reasons for how you came to be where you are in your profession, right? You were probably good at biology, and your biology teacher probably said something like, wow, you get great grades. You understand this stuff. You should maybe think about going into medicine. Maybe it was the fact that you just needed a job and a lot of nursing jobs were available. Maybe you're just a hard worker. Maybe you wanted a job that, that pays pretty well, but you can still seem to manage a family on the side. And that's pretty much why you are where you are. But now don't you have to consider one more thing? Who you are. The covenant. Friends, we can't forget the story of Esther. How was it that of all the women in the empire, it was Esther who was chosen to be the queen? And how was it that of all the people in the empire, it was Mordecai that saved the king from assassination? And how was it that the king should have insomnia on the very night that Haman was building his gallows for Mordecai? And how was it that of all the stories in the king's annals, the one that was read to him that very night was the one about Mordecai saving his life? And how was it that Haman became the victim of his very own schemes? Friends, in all of our stories, we cannot forget that God is the main character. God. And even in Persia, even in exile, even in Susa, where there is, there is no Jerusalem, there's no temple, there's no Sanhedrin, there's no sacrificial system, God is still very present there, isn't he? And he is still God, and he is still at work completing his mission, and he's still using his people to do it. And even in your hospital, or your engineering firm, or your university, or your factory, God may not be your boss, he may not be your CFO, he may not be your president of the board, but he is still there, isn't he? And his hand is still at work guiding his mission. And he's still calling you to be a part of that. And to never ask the question, why does he have me here, in this place, at this moment, may just be to miss out on all the good that God intended to do through you. If I perish, I perish. Friends in Christ, our old self is already dead in Jesus Christ. Now let the new self come to life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we now come to your table and we ask that in your grace you would remind us again of who we are. That we are your covenant people. That in Jesus Christ our old self and our old devotions, our old loyalties, all those things are dead and gone. And in the new self that has risen with you, we are your servants, committed to your causes, 
and our only God is the Father of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Remind us again. Give us your grace to understand again, Lord Jesus, who we are. And thank you for bringing us to your table. In his name we pray. Amen.